Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Shattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen is joined by Michael Trout and Lori Thomas for part one of their discussion on Trout's seventh video, The Hope-Filled Parent, Meditations for Foster and Adoptive Parents of Children Who Have Been Harmed. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part two will be released on March 10th. So hello out there listeners and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter from Chaddock and I am your host for the podcast. So it's so good to be back today with our continuing series with Michael Trout. I've been speaking with Michael for a number of weeks about um, the topics within his entire video collection that he made that is to educate both parents and professionals about attachment issues, trauma issues, and these sorts of things in babies and children and adolescents and So here we are again, switching it up today a little bit. We are going to have a second guest here with Michael, and her name is Lori Thomas, and she has collaborated with Michael on a number of projects, uh, including a book called The Jonathan Letters, uh, which we will be talking about uh, with them at some point. But today, what we're going to be talking about is... Lori's involvement with a meditation CD called the Hope Filled Parent, Meditations for Foster and Adoptive Parents of Children Who Have Been Harmed. And Lori contributed some poetry to this work, and that's why we're having her join us on the podcast today. So, of course, you all know about Michael's background. I've had him on repeatedly, and Lori's been on the podcast before, too. But I do want to share a little bit of Lori's background, since um, some of you may be less familiar with her. So Lori has an MA in professional counseling, and as I mentioned, is the co-author of The Jonathan Letters, which she and Michael composed uh, from letters back and forth to them, and they wrote that in 2005. It's a book about caring for and adopting a child with attachment difficulties. She's also a contributing author to Attachment Theory in Action, Building Connections Between Children and Parents which is a really great book. If some of you haven't looked into, you might want to. Um, She is an active advocate and public speaker on children's issues. She's the mother of seven children, three through birth and four through adoption. She served on the board of directors of the Association for the Treatment and Training in the Attachment of Children for nine years. Lori's energy, knowledge and warmth have made her a sought-after speaker for many groups involved with foster and adopted children. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, Paul, their youngest child, and two dogs. And she currently, since finishing her uh, master's degree, is a counselor in residency at Emmaus Family Counseling Center in Ashburn, Virginia. 
On a personal note, Lori is one of my dearest, closest friends and has taught me so much about being a therapeutic parent and just about being a parent in general. And so I'm so happy to welcome her along with Michael to the podcast today. So we'll be back in just a few seconds with the beginning of the interview. This spring, sought-after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for one-day workshops you won't want to miss. On May 1st in Denver, Colorado and June 5th in Atlanta, Georgia, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical, evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lecture, discussion, and role-play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson, May 1st in Denver and June 5th in Atlanta. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook. Here we are with Michael Trout and Lori Thomas, and we're going to be talking about the Hope-Filled Parent, Meditations for Foster and Adoptive Parents of Children Who Have Been Harmed. Welcome back to the podcast, both of you. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. So, uh, as I was preparing for the podcast, Michael, I, I reread, of course, um, the booklet that has all of the meditations on it. But what I wanted to ask you to speak to first was the idea that this came from a week-long silent retreat at a monastery that you went to in 2007. I forgot that until until I read this and it was particularly important to me because I just came back two weeks ago I was in Cincinnati at a convent an Episcopalian convent for two days of circle training but it wasn't a silent retreat I was once signed up for a silent retreat which my kids thought was hilarious and didn't think I was even going to be able to handle. Um, but I ended up not being able to go because um, I had a, a, the death of my father. But I want to hear like a little bit about that just to give the backdrop before we get started with some of the content. Well, that is where the idea uh, emerged. Uh, although I, I can't claim that it emerged in some moment of great uh, wisdom or enlightenment. The truth is, I am a terrible um, meditator. Always have been. I've struggled with it most of my life. I do it, but I'm really lousy at it. I, Mary and I do it together a good deal of the time, and we're both a lot better when we do it together. So anyway, it had never really particularly occurred to me, and that's, that's the reason I, I went to this event. Uh, I was very stupid in signing up for a, a silent retreat. And it happened to be a silent retreat only with a neuroscientist. I was probably one of the few clinicians in the audience, and I don't even know how I got in because it was um, all these high-end high people in academia. Oh. the brain uh, under the circumstances of meditation. So were you like hanging out with Dan Siegel and Alan Shore and? Uh... Well, even bigger than that, but uh, I, won't, I won't go into who was there. Okay, we, we will go there. Okay. The point is, I was with all these wonderful, wonderful people and couldn't talk to them, nor they to me. Uh, and I was also in agony 
uh, not being able to speak or hear anyone else speak. It, it was not an easy week. Mary remembers that I sneaked off uh, twice with my cell phone, which I wasn't supposed to have. <gasps> Michael, you broke the rules. Oh, I did. I went across the road into the woods and <laughs> called Mary. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Is my way of demonstrating that I'm not exactly an expert on uh, meditation. But what I did have an awful lot of experience in is sitting with families who were really, really suffering. Yes. And uh, trying to imagine what in the world would help them beyond what little bit I could offer. Um, and as anybody knows who's ever been a part of a family with a child with a very severe disorder, um, an adopted child, usually a very severe disorder related to early loss and trauma. As anyone who's ever been in a family like that knows, and as anyone who's ever tried to help a family like that knows, wisdom does not abound. And I'm not even sure wisdom even helps. Um, so I had sat with families, I had tried to help, um, and I was looking for something else that would help. And I was hearing them say, things about what time they got up in the morning or how often they got up in the middle of the night or something that would get them in silence, get them um, where there wasn't a screaming child uh, making mayhem in the kitchen. Uh, and that's, it was the combination of those stories, my wish to be of some kind of help and this week of silent retreat that all came together to make me wonder whether I could write with the help of some others, um, some meditations, could put them on a CD, could add some music, could have some of the meditations actually read by little children, uh, preschool children. And would that combination be something that families could then actually have at their disposal in the middle of the night or some other time when they're out doing errands in the van? Um, that would actually uh, bless them, lift them up, give them peace, give them just a moment to look at things from a, another perspective, um, would help them come come up with their own wisdom. Mm -hmm. So that's a long-winded way of saying how I did it and why I did it. You're never too long-winded, Michael. We can just listen to you go, go on for for a very long time. So, so, and you called on some colleagues and some friends. We have uh, Dan Hughes also contributed to this. You have family members who contributed to this. Um, Lori contributed to this. I'm getting to her. Oh, and Lori contributed to this. And Lori, I want to, you know, we talked about listeners before the podcast started prioritizing Lori's role as an, as a, an adoptive parent and, and a, a parent of children that have had um, difficulties in their in their own histories, trauma, et cetera, but that she's also now a therapist. So we're prioritizing her role as a parent here and participating in this interview, but also want her to be able to chime in, in in her other role as a therapist as well as she chooses to. So Lori, I first, you know, I saw you 
I could just tell what Michael was saying. I know listeners can't see us, but um, resonate. I could see what he was saying resonating with you, and and you were shaking your head. Uh, what what are your thoughts with with what Michael was proposing with this project? Before we get into some of the content. Well, at the time, of course, I had no idea when he asked me to contribute a piece. I had no idea what this whole background was that he just shared. And um, but it's it's so important as a parent of children with um, with significant challenges in their early histories and who have really struggled. I I love 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 listening to these pieces. It is so important to come alongside and to, and to be felt and to be heard. And I think that's what Michael was, you know, speaking to rather than wisdom, just being in the presence of somebody who can listen and, and hear your struggles and, and hear what's going on. When this first came out, I can't tell you how many parents told me they listened to it in the car. They, they listened to it whenever they could because it did give a voice to some of the things they were hearing and it gave hope to some of the things that they were feeling and, and experiencing. And it's, I think it's so vital that parents know that they have somebody that has been there and who kind of feels what they're feeling, who can, who can partner with them in a way, but it also is nice to have that voice that that they can listen to anytime they want when someone's not available. And so having these meditations is really special in that way. Yes, and I think, you know, one of the things that um, parents have said, and I use the the CD a lot in all of our in-home intensives, we usually open with one of the meditations in the morning. I often use them in training groups and I think an overwhelming response that I've often had is, um, he gets it or she gets it, you know, which is exactly what you're talking about. Feeling like somebody out there gets how hard this is, how, how challenging, how difficult. And, you know, as we were talking about this, even though it's focused on meditations for foster and adoptive parents, there's a lot of it that's relevant for any parent, like needing to just settle in and find a space to just be quiet and, and listen and not feel, oh my gosh, am I the only one that thinks this is this hard, you know? Look, see, it seems like people on Facebook are doing a lot better than I am, <laughs> you know? So I do also want to say, I think there's so much relevance to just parenting in general. Um, and, you know, I think, Michael, you, 2007, that was before things were catching on, I think, as strongly as they are now with mindfulness and meditation practice. So this seems like you were definitely on the early end of that. And it's it, before there was so much talk about um, reading the mind of the baby. Neuroscientists have uh, better words to, for fancier words than that. But um, part of my hope always was, as an infant mental health clinician, was to help moms and dads 
uh, try to imagine what is inside their baby's heart or mind when they do whatever they're doing at the moment. And one of the things I've liked about this uh, CD is the use of little children's voices, because as it turns out, if you can get a parent to be really, really, really quiet for a minute, which the music and the meditation uh, does, and then have them listen to a child speak to them in that quiet about what's in their heart, boy, empathy sometimes can increase, if not skyrocket, and that alone, no brilliance, no wisdom, no answers, just the increased empathy can sometimes make a big difference in the family. Mm, yes. Is there anything you'd want to add to that, Lori? How can you add to what Michael Trout says? <laughs> yes, I think that's absolutely, of course, that's absolutely correct. And getting to a point where you can feel that is so important. And, you know, you talk about parents trying to find that quiet place. It's so important for parents to find a quiet place and, and spend this time. And I don't know how many parents share that they, you know, the quiet place becomes the bathroom, any place where they can lock a door and go and go hide. And we need to give, I think, parents, and as a parent, I've felt this, permission to do that. It feels like the parent is always on. The parent needs to hear that it's okay to go and spend that quiet time, that their needs to refuel and recharge and gain that perspective, gain that level of empathy. Um, it's so important. They can't pour out what they don't have. And so finding that time to gain that is, is really vital. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a good lead into to the first one, Michael, um, I get tired and I forget is the first one. I'd like to hear why you chose that as the first one, because what I know about you is nothing is just by chance. <laughs> and then I would like to have you read it. And I would like to say that this is, I've used all of these so much, but I have used this one also for therapists and helpers and, and, and just everybody, not just parents. And so I want to know why you chose to put that one first. And then I'd like if you would read it for our listeners. And you may want to think about uh, when you put the podcast finally ed edited together, just playing it rather than having m me read it, after letting people listen to it from the CD. By the way, the last thing you said, I just want to uh, lift up. Uh, I've tried using this a few times with school teachers, clinicians, and others who have nothing to do with the intended purpose, and have been very surprised at their reactions. They do, yes. for some reason, really tie into the feelings of impotence that arise when you not only don't have the answers to, to what to how to help this kid that's writhing around on the floor of your classroom or your living room, but you're starting to feel the impotence that goes along with not knowing the answers. And it's dragging you down and you can barely lift up your face, much less your spirit. You don't know what to do and you know you don't know what to do and it's killing you. So that's that's part of why I, I wrote this and it's part of why I chose it for the lead 
um, meditation on the CD. I think it's a big, big deal that we get so worn out. And when we get worn out, one of the first things to go is our empathy followed quickly by our wisdom. And so pretty soon we don't even remember why we're doing this. We can't remember why we took this kid. We sure can't remember why we kept this kid. We're kind of thinking about maybe not keeping this kid. We're kind of thinking about calling child welfare and saying, come get him. Because we really don't remember who we thought we were that we could help. That's yes. a better place to be. Yes. So shall I read? Yes. Okay. Okay, okay so, so I get I tired. Get tired. Real, Real tired some, some days. days. Wiped right out, to tell you the truth. And in such states, I'm prone to forget why I'm doing this. And so I forget how to do it. It happens most when the limits of my power are shoved quite in my face. I see that I can't make this child love me. I can't make this child love anybody. I can't even make this child accept my love. I keep pouring it in and it keeps draining out a hole somewhere. These are important times for me. When such times don't bring me completely to my knees, they help me to reorganize myself, to rethink the whole proposition, to reestablish my priorities, and to commit once more to the few things I can do. To love a child that others didn't so well to pour into this vessel what I can, to be ready for the slightest hint of tenderness growing in this child while not needing anything back, and to not punish him today for being exactly who he is, an injured baby clumsily trying to find his way. Let me today be a witness. Let me give up rights to the outcome. Let me suit up. Let me show up. Let, Let me, me be, be the, the carrier, carrier of hope for a child who has little of his, of his own. But, but mostly, mostly let, me. let me just be there. Mm, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. Now, had you written this earlier or did you purpose or did you write that this specifically for this project so what i'm asking are these some of these things that you had written earlier that that you put into this collection or the things in here you wrote specifically for this or a combination no i'm afraid i had to do it all at once wow along, along with several other contributors yes where my role only was to edit what they sent me from their own wisdom and experience yes um could could you um hmm, trying to think uh well well lori did you have anything that you wanted to add to the reading of that 
when I first was raising a child and I was looking for a little bit of hope and was blessed to be connected with Michael Trout, it was an amazing, amazing thing. And one of the things that um, he prepared us for was, is written of in here, he writes to be ready for the slightest hint of tenderness growing in this child. And it was amazing to be able to watch a child and catch little things that we might not have caught otherwise. Oh. I think it makes such a difference when you're prepared to catch just little hints that something is happening, that something is changing, rather than wait for everything to come together. Kind of goes with Kim Golding's house model of parenting, where the child's ability to actually be um, in control of their behaviors comes kind of at the top of the house, but there's so many things that come to attunement and building of that secure base before, before that. And to watch for the little hints, the little bits, of, the little glimmers of hope that something is changing is so powerful. And being able to accept that and recognize that was really big in our, our parenting journey. And I think this speaks to that. When you're tired and your stamina is gone and then you see a little glimmer, a little change, a little bit of a, a, the way a child reaches out and touches you that's just a little bit different than it was the day before. It's just gives a spark of energy that is amazing. And this really, this meditation really speaks to that hope. Pretty powerful. <laughs> Yes. I want to talk about the line that says, let me give up rights to the outcome. Mm. And I would like to talk about that from both a parent perspective and a clinician perspective. So, um, Michael, let's, let's hear, hear your thoughts about that. Well, it's, a, it's one of the awful manholes into which many parents fall. Uh, but particularly parents who get into this uh, crazy-making world of, of love, trying to love a child who doesn't want to be loved, yet, but yet he does, and certainly doesn't want to love back, but yet he does, and has been very, very hurt. Um, I think that there is a kind of contract that parents presume, and we have every right to presume, that when we birth a child or adopt a child, things move along. We pour really good stuff in, we make good meals, we give them good nutrition, we cuddle them and we talk to them and we empathize with them and pretty soon they get big and strong in their bodies and they get big and strong in their minds and their hearts and then they make us really proud someday and then we cry and, and they graduate and, and we can stand back and think, look what we did. It's no few parents would acknowledge that they they expect that, but most of us do. And boy, do these kids take that contract and shove it right in their face. They, they do everything but do a dance and say, yeah, yeah, I fooled you. Because <laughs> you're not going to get any of that. And so what's what's the answer? I, I think maybe a part of the answer is to back back away six steps, take note of what we were expecting, that we were expecting this parental contract to be fulfilled, 
and we don't get to. We just flat out with this child, we just flat out don't get to expect. We may still expect an outcome, but we don't get to expect that we'll have much to do with it. We no longer get to expect that there's a direct link between our behavior and things getting better this afternoon or even next year. They may, they probably will, maybe they won't, but we sure can't draw the line of efficacy very clearly at all. Because if we did, we'd also then have to take the blame for when what happens next year is that that child that we poured all that into is in a residential treatment center because we couldn't handle him anymore and neither can anybody else. That's the outcome. If it is, then if we took credit for the good stuff, then we're gonna have to take blame for this. Mm -hmm. The truth is our, our efficacy is suspect limited with these children. Mm -hmm. With all children, again, in some regard, I, I, I keep thinking about that too, you know. Um, I know I love Harriet Lerner's work and uh, she writes about, you know, I just don't think any parent should take credit for anything either way, <laughs> you know, because you just really don't know. She writes that she's seen children with perhaps um, not what she would have seen as stellar parenting do fabulously. And she's seen kids with really seemed exceptional parents do very poorly and you just, um, you know, don't know. Um, but, you know, giving up rights to the outcome, what are your thoughts on that, Lori? Because it, it, we all live by this great myth that you like work hard, pour into the kids, and then, you know, we'll all just live happily ever after. <laughs> well, the, the joy of my life is that I have seven children with a variety of outcomes. <laughs> a variety so of outcomes. I can look at the concept and say, my goodness, I tried really hard and the outcomes are, are so varied. And sometimes I see things turn around at different stages. You know, life is over when life is over and not until then. Yeah. And so adjusting expectations as we go along, I think is very important as parents. Um, giving up those rights and ex exactly what you said. Now, I've seen more parents who want to take the blame for things going wrong, but they give the children credit for what goes right. And again, it's like, where, where's the uh, equity in that? There's, there's none. We really do our best at every stage. And I think that's important to recognize. We can only do what we know to do at the time. And things change, even in the field, things change. And what is best practice today is different than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So we do our best at each stage. We have to pour into our child what we know is, is the best that we can do. And then what happens is a bit of an unknown and that's okay. That's okay, we're all different. I'm a strong Christian and I believe that God is a, a very knowing, powerful parent and he got all of us as kids. And so um, he got a bit of a, of a mess, 
you know, and so um, that gives me a little bit of of uh, encouragement to know that parenting doesn't doesn't uh, guarantee an outcome. We all have free will, and things happen. Some children come with some histories of, of abuse and neglect, and there's more complicated things going on with their process. And that's what we're trying to work with. But um, giving up rights to the outcome, I think, is important. Adjusting expectations and saying we can roll with it and we can love and whatever comes, um, that's going to be okay. I stumbled across a metaphor that I didn't even recognize with uh, my son, my adopted son. I was uh, being a part of, along with Mary, raising a child at the time I wrote these, who had both attachment disorder and autism. And I hadn't given a lot of thought to how those would interconnect and, and play with each other. The attachment disorder arose out of his lying in a uterus for nine months of a mom who had given away, given away her eight previous children one at a time. I'm quite sure that had a profound effect on him to be inside a body like that. And then he, he, had, he, he was taken away from her as well. She gave him away rather. And he lay then in a foster home for nine months, completely unattended to. It wasn't that it was hateful parents. It was just that they had uh, I don't know, I forgot the number now, but 15 or so other foster kids. And he was the youngest and he was a baby and he was okay in the bed and he was quiet, so he was ignored. Um, but years and years later, this would play out in, in a number of ways. But years and years later, I, I started helping him with his math homework. And he got it one day. He got a problem that we'd been working on for a while. And I looked at Mary and I, I'm sure my head must have just swollen to triple size. I all but did a jig saying, in effect, I did it. Not he did it, but I did it. I helped him get that math problem. Look at what's happening. Look at my efficacy. Aren't I wonderful? Five minutes later, we returned to that math problem. He had not the slightest idea how to do it. Mm. And that went on day after day after day until I finally gave up and said, I think you're going to have to do the math thing to Mary. Because I, I no longer could abide these ups and downs. I would get caught into having expectations. If yeah. you learned it, you would retain it. Yes. Yes. Well, um, before we wrap up our part one of this uh, interview, I want to go to one more thing about this particular um, reading, and that is, Michael, how dare you uh, say give up the rights to outcome to professionals or therapists in this day of performance-based contracting and outcome-based measures and managed care saying fix everyone in six sessions how what what are we supposed to do as as clinicians out there um what what, what do, how do we handle that oh gosh am i old enough in my retirement that i can say the truth 
Yes. <laughs> the truth is what we do about it is grow the hell up. <laughs> I mean, really. All, I, all these, all these outcome-based systems are wonderful, I, I'm sure. On some planet, they're wonderful. They work probably wonderfully for many professions, but they don't work so well. I'm not even sure they work so well in education, but I'm quite sure they don't work so well in many uh, areas of clinical practice. And not because we don't have a right to have them and, and, or have at least have a right to want them. Not because it isn't noble for somebody one of these days to figure out exactly what works and only do that from now on. I think that's all just lofty as can be and wonderful and so on. It just doesn't happen to work that way. It doesn't. It sounds kind of outrageous when you state it that way, but it, it is what it is. And I'm convinced I wasn't being entirely sarcastic when I say what we need to do about this is grow the hell up because I'm afraid it, it is our need, not the patient's need, not the child's need. It's our need to prove the connections between intervention A and outcome A. It's our need to feel strong and efficacious and to be able to link things that we do with what then happens. It's our need that has caused this to happen, this era in which we think we can measure everything and things are only worthy to be done if you can measure them and show that they they did they did what they were supposed to do. Yes. Yeah. It is, in other words, boy, dare I say it, it, it is selfishness on our part, on the part of we clinicians that make because we want to feel good and we can feel best if we know exactly what we're doing all the time and it comes out well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's sometimes imposed by external systems on to clinicians but except yeah take what you just said and break it down and you see that those external systems were devised by people just like us yes so it's just a macro of all yes. of us Yes, yes. All right. Well, we are going to take a short pause here. Uh, we're going to take a break and, um, and uh, at the moment, and we will be coming back with part two of talking about the Hope-Filled Parent Meditation CD. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.